and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. We all probably need a good laugh right about now, and our guest this week, humorist Andrew Schaefer, is the one to provide it. Andrew is the New York Times best-selling author of the Obama-Biden series, a buddy detective mystery series which includes Hope Never Dies and Hope Rides Again. His new book that comes out in November is called Secret Santa and is a clash of the holidays, Halloween and Christmas, a comedic book that combines horror and holiday vibes about a holiday office party gone bad. He's the author of 11 books in several genres, but says that humor is the theme that ties all his books together. Andrew talks to us about why he goes back to his comfort reads during the pandemic, why he thinks satire makes the medicine of heavy topics go down a little easier, and why he looks to the past for inspiration for book ideas, even when there are so many crazy things and 2020 to poke fun at. He also tells us a pretty hysterical story about the worst job he ever had. Our guest this week has been living in Louisville for about a year and a half. He is a full-time writer and the author of a dozen books. You may have heard of one. It's called the Obama-Biden Mystery Series. And so in honor of the upcoming election in November, we are interviewing Andrew Schaefer. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thank you. Well, I'm glad to be here in my home, I guess. I should say. <laughs> That's right. So we're excited to talk to you. The election's coming up. And I picked up a copy of your book, the first one in the Obama-Biden mystery series. And it was a very fun read. So before we get into the nitty gritty about that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of your journey to becoming a writer? Well, if you would have asked me when I was a kid what I wanted to be, I would have told you a writer, but I probably would have said like a comic book writer or a horror novel writer or something. I never really saw myself as writing anything that was even remotely political. That just was not something on my radar. So it was quite a shock for these books to come out of me. But, um, <laughs> but I think I think my whole writing career has been a little bit of a shock to me because it, you know it's not what I mapped out. I, I always wanted to be a writer. But like I said, I, there were certain things I wanted to do. I wanted to write horror novels. I loved Stephen King as a kid, Clive Barker, Anne Rice. And then as I grew up, I just sort of drifted further and further away from that. And my first book published was a book called Great Philosophers Who Failed at Love, which was just a bunch of mini biographies about philosophers' love lives. You just could not get further from, you know, what I thought writing would be as a kid to what it was when I published my first book when I was 30. And then from there, I've just written uh, a dozen books now. And each one has been a, pretty much a completely different genre. So it's been, you know, a really wild ride so far. And it makes it very difficult for my agent to pin me down when she tries <laughs> to pitch me to, <laughs> to publishers. It's like, oh, he did those Obama Biden mysteries. What's he got now? It's a horror novel set at Christmas. You know, it's like, <laughs> what? I can't explain it. The only thing that goes through all of my books is a sense of humor. So I often will call myself a humorist or a comedy writer rather than call myself, you know, just an, a mystery author or something like that. It's funny how we want to silo people. People can't do multiple things. It's just very strange to me how it's like, okay, you fit into this category and that's your only, and I do it too. Oh yeah. I think totally. it's just like human nature. Totally. You know, you get so good at one thing and you can't do anything else. You know, Stephen King wrote uh, The Shawshank Redemption 
And he had a woman come up to him one time and say, why can't you write anything nice like that movie, The Shawshank Redemption? (laughs) Write something nice, not this spooky stuff. So people have their own idea of you. And, you know, it's sometimes it's how you're marketed by your publisher or just in general, you create an identity for yourself on, you know, social media these days. And it's tough to get away from or, or, you know, allow for you to be really a full, complete person, which is you know, I'm just interested in different things. I don't read one type of book. I, I would find that really boring. And so I don't write one type of book. So were you a big reader as a kid? You mentioned you, that you used to read some Stephen King and Clive Barker. Oh, were absolutely. you a big reader? I was, I was reading that stuff when I was, you know, nine or 10, way too early to be reading <laughs> Stephen King and Clive Barker. We would drive past this adult bookstore every day as a kid. I remember it was on the way to school and I would see it and it said adult books outside. And I always begged my mom. I was like, I read Stephen King and Clive Barker. Like, can we just please go there? (laughs) If that was the first clue that maybe I didn't quite have the maturity level to read adult books. So I was just a huge reader though. And every one in my family were we're big readers, uh, my grandparents and my mom, my aunts and everyone. And uh, well, mostly the women, actually. The men profess to not having ever read books. But, you know, <laughs> like like my dad says, I'll, I'll read one of your books, you know, when it gets made into a movie or something. But um, but then, then again, he's read my wife's books, I think. So I don't know what that's about. She writes romantic erotica. So uh, uh, well, I, I see why that would be maybe more his jam. I don't. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned that you read pretty widely now as an adult. Are there standout authors that you tend to go back to now as an adult? I'm always trying to go back to what I read as a kid and trying to see, was that any good? And sometimes it isn't. Like a lot of these 1980s horror novels, some of the Stephen King stuff, some of it's good. Some of it, he was so drugged out that <laughs> it's just 1,200 pages. It's a mess. There's good stuff in there, but there's just a lot of junk in some of his books that it's just completely off topic. So yeah, so I'll go back and try to read some of these books I did read at the time. But oftentimes I'm just kind of disappointed. So now I, I read just uh, just a mix of stuff. You know, I pick up everything from uh, humorous books to I'm reading Allie Brosh's new book right now. She's a cartoonist and blogger and she's got some really funny stuff out. And I still read a lot of comic books like I did when I was a kid. I'm always trying to expand my, you know, reading beyond what I grew up with and it's really tough, you know, for someone to say you should read some of a different genre here or this or that. And I'm like, eh, you know, I kind of go back to those comfort foods and especially in like a pandemic time, I just go back to those comfort foods over and over. I just noticed I started to get back into comic books really big time. And that's always when my wife goes, is everything okay? Are you doing okay? <laughs> Just uh, well, noticed you're reading a lot of comic books. And I'm like, oh, I've got 25 years to catch up on. <laughs> I saw a, something on Twitter, I think, last night, but it said something like, I'll be so glad when I can actually read a book before bed rather than like doom scrolling forever. Uh, and I, I really feel that that one speaks to me because I find myself doing it. It's like, I've got my books, but I have to force myself to get off my phone because I'm like, what is blowing up now? Yeah, no, that's also an issue too. Why I go back to that sort of comfort food and why I gravitate towards comic books right now. It's just because I don't feel that my mind is there to really read a novel, read something new and really get into it. It's just really tough because I'm always, especially, you know, the doom scrolling, it's doom refreshing. It's doom, <laughs> it's doom everything. I'm, you just don't know what's going to happen next. And I feel to an extent, though, that that's how we've been living for past four years. There was a time when we had a president who didn't make the news every day, you know, because he didn't really use Twitter. And then we got a president who knew how to use Twitter. And all of a sudden it was news every day. I'm going to tell you what we're going to talk about. And I'm like, what? We get an agenda? This is a lot. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you agree with him or don't agree with him. I wouldn't want to talk about Barack Obama or Joe Biden every day. I want a week to go by where I don't think about politics or the president. 
let's kind of segue into your Obama-Biden mystery. And with the election right around the corner, tell us what inspired these books. If you know, you said these ideas, you don't know where they come from, but what has the feedback been like on that series? Start Uh, at the beginning. Yeah, well, at the beginning, it was 2016, and a candidate named Donald Trump threw his name into the ring to run for president. And a publisher contacted me and said, hey, you know, I did some parodies before. I did a Fifty Shames of Earl Grey, which was a parody of Fifty Shades of Grey. I did a book called How to Survive a Sharknado, which not a parody. Uh, they took it really <laughs> seriously, by the way. <laughs> and, and so I'd written a couple of fun books like that. And, and a publisher just said, hey, would you be interested in writing a book about Donald Trump becoming president. So it'd be just a quickie satire. We'll give you 30 days. You write it and we'll get it out before he drops out of the race. So basically I had 30 days to write it, then 30 days to do revisions. And that was it. And they put it out like a month later. It was crazy. However, what happened between that time was that he became the leading candidate and everybody else dropped out. And I was like, what does this mean for my book? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means that once the real world catches up to your satire, (laughs) dead in the water. And so even though, especially once the real world, once he took office and stuff started happening that was further than I'd gone in the book in terms of humor, there was some stuff that happened that was literally word for word right out of the book. That was really scary. I was like, are they reading my book in the White House? (laughs) And it was called The Day of the Donald. And it did not sell a lot of copies. Nobody wanted to read it when they were like, this could really happen. What are you doing? I was like, well, I didn't think it would happen, you guys. I I wasn't trying to make anything happen. So I felt then that I had some type of clairvoyance, which was this powerful, powerful feeling. And I said, I want to use that power for good next time. I want to do it to make the world a less crazy place. And I thought, what if Barack Obama and Joe Biden had a second career as as private detectives? And I thought about it. I said, yeah, that would make the world a better place, I think. I saw how everybody got overjoyed with those Obama-Biden memes in 2017, uh, just as they were leaving office. And it was just really heartwarming. And it was like, oh, you know what? This is about a friendship between two people. It's not about politics. If you read the books, there's not a lot of politics in them. They don't sit around and talk about liberal ideas or anything. They talk about what it means to be friends and how you can trust someone or be honest. It, It really went to a more emotional place than I planned. I started to write the books just kind of as a joke. And then the further I got into it, I was like, I wrote some kind of serious stuff in the first book, and I turned it into my uh, editor, and he was like, someone read this and they cried. It was like really deep stuff. They're like, you just don't read books, especially with male protagonists that are just that open about their feelings and stuff a lot. So that's been a really interesting thing is that people, you know, they might pick it up because of the politics, but I think you get drawn into the story. It's a mystery. It just happens to feature these two characters, which are a very thinly veiled Sherlock and Watson. Let's be honest. That's the, (laughs) that's the been the buddy cop dynamic since the 1800s. So I'm not breaking any new ground there, but I don't know. You don't see that a lot anymore in books. You have like Lee Child's Jack Reacher series. He doesn't have a buddy. He has a buddy. It's his toothbrush. It's the only thing he carries around with him. Have you ever read those books at all? No, I haven't either. No, they're made into a couple of movies with uh, Tom Cruise, but it's this character named Jack Reacher and he just goes around from town to town. He gets involved in these murders and stuff and solves them, but he's he's not exactly homeless. Well, he's kind of homeless. He just stays in motels, but the only thing he carries with him is his toothbrush. And I'm like, really? (laughs) That's it? I mean, not even floss? This is... It's really, it's really weird. You have these characters nowadays, they're all very self-sufficient and they don't need help from anyone. And I was like, well, what if you had people that needed help and asked each other for help? And so it turned out to be a very different book series. And we've got two so far, was going to do a third one, but then Joe decided to run for president and just messed up the plot of the third book completely. (laughs) 
You know, I just finished the book last night and it was so nostalgic reading it. And it was really kind of fun to read it right now, right before the election. And you refer a lot to him possibly running again. It was written from his first person point of view. And there are a lot of personal details in it about him. Did you have to do a lot of research to write it? And what about that duo do you think makes for an interesting book relationship? Well, the second question was about the relationship. They were not friends to begin with. They were not bitter enemies, but they were not friends in the Senate. They had two different philosophies on governing and on politics. Even though they were both Democrats, they were pretty far apart. And just everything about them, they were this odd couple. And over the course of eight years, they became very, very close. And Biden's grandchildren and the Obama children became close. So you had this really interesting dynamic where you watched a friendship blossom almost in real time. And you're like, oh, that's kind of neat that people who work together who are very different could like each other. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and so I thought that was sort of a nice message to get behind. And I was doing a lot of research on them for the books, and especially on Biden, there just wasn't much out there. So a lot of the Biden in my book is a little bits of the real Biden, and then a whole lot of just conjecture. Now, the mm-hmm. the strangest thing happened was he actually read the first book. <gasps> so this past year, I guess he just had some downtime on the campaign trail, and he read it. <laughs> And, and he said he enjoyed it. I mean, I'm sure he was just shaking his head the whole time. I'd never say that. I'd never say that. But the funny thing <laughs> was, like, after he read this, in one of the debates, he actually used a, the line, hope never dies from the book, which was just such a weird thing to see. Again, to see something from a book, then sort of go backwards. And I was like, wait a minute. is he Now is he lifting stuff from the book? I know Trump was lifting stuff from my book. <laughs> It must be strange even for him to see himself as a starred hero in a book, to read about yourself like that in a fictional way. Oh, I know. I know. And, you know, I didn't get too much into his real life stuff, like tragedies with his son and everything. And so it's kind of surface level. But again, he said he enjoyed it. So that was good enough. When you were talking, Andrew, about that whole story of two guys who become friends, it it made me think about in the 80s, there were all those, there was Chips and all of Uh these movies, like with Eddie Murphy and I think Mel Gibson. I don't know, like there were all these buddy movies. So I, I wonder, aside from the fact that maybe we just ran it into the ground that was like all of the 80s yeah it was much bigger in in movies instead of books you didn't really have buddy books like that Mm -hmm. Um, but you had it in movies there weren't too many female ones but you don't really see that there are obviously lots of reasons for that but i think the the reason that the ones with the men sort of dropped off is just because you had to have two big bankable stars and Mm -hmm. we just don't make movie stars like we used to i don't think in this in this country they're just not as big as they used to be. Yeah. So we have reality stars, whatever I know, that is. We have reality stars. It's, it's interesting though, but yeah, you, you just don't see it very much. And I just think as people's tastes change and also you flood the market with a bunch of bad ones. I wrote about the horror boom in the eighties in my new book that's coming out. It's set in the 1980s in publishing. And so there's a lot of talk in this book about the horror boom in publishing in the eighties and why it imploded. And one of the reasons is it just got so big that they just started flooding the market with just total garbage. And then people get burned out on it and they move on to something else for the next 10 years. So I I see that cycle repeat. It just repeats with, you know, something new and then five or 10 years, it'd be something new again. I'm curious if Biden does win the election, do you see yourself doing a Biden-Harris buddy mystery? Is that (laughs) something you've even considered? I have not even considered it simply because it's so much just to follow what's going on right now. But they would certainly be even more of a mismatch duo than Obama (laughs) and Biden because just because of that interaction they had in that first debate, I was like, wow, she just wiped the floor with this guy. I think it's amazing, though, that he's like, and I'd like you to come on board my team. You see this maybe in like movies or something where someone beats up the rival and it's like, okay, now join my team. (laughs) (laughs) Now you can join the Justice League, Batman, now that I've kicked your butt. I'm like, okay, so that's sort of what it felt like. I was like, wow, this is some Justice League type crap here. This is nice. Have you ever considered a Trump-Pence 
buddy mystery. <laughs> no, but I did want to do a Mike Pence and his mother mystery. <laughs> mother is what he calls his wife. Right. And so, so they would be the Mike and his mother mysteries. And oh my God. His mother. unfortunately that didn't take off. Maybe it needed less eroticism in it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think you might try that again. The time might be right now. I know. I know. So you mentioned that you had written a parody called Fifty Shades of Earl Grey. So I'm curious, what was it that motivated or inspired that? I assume you have read the original Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, what happened was, I mentioned that my wife, Tiffany Rice, erotic romance, and she was writing for Harlequin at the time. And that was right around, that was 2011, 2012, when Fifty Shades of Grey came out. And Fifty Shades of Grey blew up like right away. It just became really huge because it had an existing fan base. A lot of people don't know that it was originally Twilight fan fiction. So it had a huge fan base online. And then when it was published, they all went out and bought the books. And then new people checked it out because it was bestseller. And the reaction from most people was, these are not well written. And especially from (laughs) within the romance industry, it was, wait a minute. This is going to be probably the only romance novel that people outside of the romance genre read this year. It's gotten so big. This is what we're going to go out and show everybody. This is what our industry is about. It was so poorly written. It was just such an embarrassment. And I started to write just a little parody of it on my blog. And immediately I had a couple of publishers DM me and say, hey, are you going to do something with that? Because we might be interested. And pretty soon, you know, I told my agent, she's like, well, I guess just write up a proposal. I actually wrote the book, which was only 40,000 words. So it's pretty short in 10 days. And we sent that out to publishers. And there was even like a little bidding war over it because Fifty Shades of Grey was super hot. And my parody was even hotter. I mean, wow. (laughs) Uh, You know, they have sex on the back of a dinosaur at one point. It's, it could only be 40,000 words because any more and, you know, the book would just explode in your hand. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I never thought in my life I was like, oh, I'll, I'll be writing a parody of an erotic romance. But again, that's where I ended up. I was like, I guess I'm doing this now. Uh, meanwhile, my wife was writing real erotic romances and... It also partially came about because I tried my hand at writing a romance novel and it was so bad. My wife just said, this reads like a parody. And (laughs) And there you go. I know. And I was like, okay, well, I guess that's all I can do. Well, you alluded to your new book that's coming out in November called Secret Santa, which is described as the office meets the shining. So can you tell us a little bit about that book? Yeah. Again, it's completely different. The first thing... uh, I was going to do what I've got on my docket here is this Joe Biden, Obama book number three. And then, and as soon as that got wiped off, I was like, I have no idea what to do. And, and my editor was like, you know, we want to put out a Christmas horror book next year. And we want it to be about a secret Santa gift exchange that goes wrong. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. I said, I do it before I even thought about it. Yeah. I wasn't even thinking like, Hey, you know, you've done two mysteries in a row. You're carving out a niche for you here. Are you sure you don't want to do this? And I'm thinking, I'm just going to go do something new because I, I had always wanted to do a horror novel. And again, that's what I read as a kid. And so I was like, that really sort of brings me back. And, and I really immersed myself in the horror genre for that. I've always read them, but I really had to immerse myself because the book is set in the world of 1980s publishing. And horror was just a booming genre then, and it was just about to fall off a cliff because of market oversaturation. And it was all about who can write the most disgusting, creepiest books. And it just got so wild that nobody wanted to read it and they just got tired and moved on from that genre. But my book is sort of a throwback to that time in the 80s. I was like, I'll also get out of politics by doing this. I'll get <laughs> to free my mind for a good year here. Uh, it takes me about a year to write a book. I'll just immerse myself in this other world. And I set it in the East Village in New York. And then I went to research and I found out that The East Village in New York in 1986 was ground zero for 
political protesting in the 1980s. I picked up a book with all these pictures and there were signs that said like, just say no to Trump. And I was like, oh no, oh no. (laughs) I thought I was getting away from everything that's happening right now in the world. I just wanted this little refuge during the day so I wouldn't be thinking about it because especially this past year, it's just been tough to concentrate and write on something. And when you're writing a book, especially a novel, you need to just live in that world for a while. And every time you read the news or something, it just takes you right back out of it. It just knocks you completely out of that world. So there was a lot of overlaps actually between the 1980s and the current day. And even in terms of some things like race relations and stuff, like really heavy topics came up as I was researching this. I unfortunately had to avoid most of that in the book because I I wanted to take a very light tone to it. But it the 80s were a very interesting time. And I'm 41. And so, you know, in 1986, I was just like seven or eight. And so it was not the 1980s that I remembered. I remember Mm -hmm. the 1980s of the Goonies and (laughs) E.T. And there was that funny actor on the screen, Ronald Reagan, who was also the president. No, there was a lot going on politically. And it was a really tough time for people, too. But the book is about a secret Santa exchange that goes wrong. And that's really my whole hook right there. So I'm curious, you know, you talked about being drawn, or I don't know if you find satire or satire finds you, but what is it that you feel like attracts you to satirical writing? You know, I, I do want to address serious issues, but through the lens of satire, which puts you at like an arm's reach from it. And it lets you examine topics in a way that you couldn't do if you were just talking about them. God bless anybody who writes real serious fiction that does address topics, but I find that, you know, a little sugar with the medicine makes it go down better. Mm -hmm. That's just my philosophy. Some people are like, no, you can't talk like that. They take things much more seriously. Or or I've had people say to me, when are you going to write a real serious book, Andrea? I just always have viewed the world through that lens. And so that's just how I see the world, I guess. And a little bit of that is from just growing up in the Midwest. I grew up in Iowa. We're not earnest about a lot there. You don't have a deep conversation with someone, especially you don't talk about politics. In fact, things have changed recently, I think, the past couple of years since I've left Iowa and come to Kentucky is that people are getting a little more open in Iowa. And in fact, they're sharing their views and their views kind of stink. <laughs> so, you know, so people have been a bit more open, but there was this whole thing for just many years, I think, and it still goes on, which is that, oh, we don't talk about deep things. We just skim the surface and kind of make a joke. And, and my wife, when she came back to my family, she's like, you guys did not say one thing for five days over Christmas that was not sarcastic. You don't say stuff to each other like, I love you. You just don't say stuff like that out loud. I think it's more of a a words don't mean a lot. It's your actions that do mean things. And so that's how what I've always been about. But again, coming to Kentucky, you get a totally different view. It's more Southern and much more cosmopolitan, which might surprise some people in Kentucky. Yeah, I think satire, for a lot of people, I think it's like a hard thing to get. I know I taught Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal. Oh, yeah. um, Which, if you have never read that, basically, and he wrote this in the 1800s. This is a fairly historical document. And Mm -hmm. he talks about the way that they can deal with the fact that people are starving is that they eat the poor children. You know, because, well, these poor people keep having babies and so they'll just eat their kids, fatten them up until they're a year old and and then they eat them. And I know I taught that because I was teaching satire and a parent contacted me and was like, I don't understand why you're teaching this. And I'm like, it's satire. (laughs) That's the whole point. There are people that are adults that don't get satire, though. That's certainly a thing. And I heard this old joke once that was there's only four words that your publishing agent doesn't want to hear, which is I'm writing a satire. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> because and you're because, like my specialty i know i know because the market for them can be kind of limited because again there are a lot of people that don't get that it's supposed to be funny they may take mm-hmm. it seriously and what i found out with especially with the trump book was that real life can certainly pass you by thankfully right. we have not passed jonathan swift's piece by and it is still funny for that. well you know we've still got a few months left in 2020 so I anything know, can happen <laughs> Well, and speaking of that, I mean, there's so many crazy things going on in 2020 to poke fun at. Is it hard to narrow it down when you're thinking about future things to write about? Uh, absolutely. I mean, what I've been doing is I just keep going to the past. You know, I'm like, oh, this book could be set in 1990s. This book could be set here. This, you know, so I've been going to the past a lot for inspiration because there's just nothing right now that you know that's going to be relevant in six months, let alone a year or two years when it's published. You just don't know. At a time of great uncertainty, it's another reason that I feel like there's a refuge there in the past. There was a time where things were different. And everybody can kind of lose themselves in that because especially with so many things going on, how do you keep track of all of that? That's all you could do all day long if you wanted to. And that's, you know, frankly, there are some days like that where it's just like what we talked about, uh, doom scrolling, where you're just going through the news to see what awful things are happening. With a new book coming out in November with COVID and the fact that people aren't able to gather in large groups, that's affected book promotion and and tours. So what does this look like in terms of being able to promote Secret Santa? Well, it's just completely changed the way that I do things. For the past two summers, not including this year, I was able to go on tour to bookstores. My publisher sent me on like a huge book tour each time, 20 to 25 bookstores over two months, which is just a huge tour that you don't really see that anymore. And I guess for good reason, because most authors say, hell no, I'm not doing that. Um, I told them, I said, you know what, I will block off two or three months here in the summer and I will just do promotion for this and you can send me wherever. And so they did send me wherever, just all across the country. It felt like being a band on tour or something. And I was like, I wanted to be a rock star also when I was a kid and thank God I did not. I would just, two or three months of that is a lot. You just get burnt out and went and ground down by the road. And so what happened was I built up like a little show each time where it was almost like a part stand-up comedy where I had like certain lines that I knew would work and I had like a whole thing. Oh, you know, if, if I took this on tour this year, I could do a couple months on my own, like going maybe to libraries or something and I could do a little one-man show and I'd like, I've got all the jokes. Unfortunately, that did not happen, you know, so again, writing a completely different book than I thought I was going to write. And then also there's not going to be any big tour for this. There's not going to be any tour except for possibly on, you know, I'm doing a lot of podcasts and this is my first one though. We'll see how it goes. Right. Have you done any of the the virtual bookstore discussions? I mean, I see that sometimes where they'll have them, someone interview. No, I have not, but you know, I watched one that was Stephen King and John Grisham and they were just in their really super boring offices. I was like, where are the skulls, man? You know? And <laughs> it was like, you really both have terrible cameras on your computers. Like, it, like they didn't put any thought or any work into it. And it's tough. People are still trying to figure that whole space out. So I would be completely absurd or egomaniacal of me to think, oh, I've got it figured out. I don't, I don't know what is going to happen, but I, you know, I do know that I tried it a couple of days ago. I did a little zoom thing with, with some folks and I was able to set my desk up so that I make sure that I have the volumes of books that I want behind me, you know, that make <laughs> me look really smart. And then, you know, make sure yeah, I have because you don't want to be like, rate your bookshelf, right? Isn't that a thing? Right, it is. It is. (laughs) And so, you know, you have to think about all this stuff in advance. It's it's a really big deal. But I I saw an author do one where they just did like, hey, we're doing it at each of these different stores over like two weeks. I actually saw two of them and they were both like kind of the same talk, but you're doing it for a virtual audience, which is everybody. So right, mm, it's really strange. I mean, in person, there's an interaction and you're there in person, signed a book, it's only value to me is as a, like a memento of, oh, I heard this person talk and I met them and I talked to them and I interacted with them. Just the whole Zoom thing. I just don't know what to do with that just yet. And I don't know mm-hmm. how to, how do you make that feel special with people? 
But, you know, I can remember people that I met in different cities across the country the past couple of years and different bookstores I went to and what one crowd was like versus another. And it, it was just a lot of fun. What are you working on next? Um, I don't know. I just recorded a theme song to my book, Secret Santa. It's a cover of George Michael's Last Christmas. You guys, you know, picked up any COVID hobbies? Crochet. Crocheting. <laughs> my wife's doing a lot of crocheting too. She crocheted a lampshade and, <laughs> and then she's like, look, I crocheted a bookmark and now I think she's crocheting a, a couch. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I tried well, to do the whole sourdough starter thing and it, I don't know, it's just weirded me out because it's like having an extra child, an extra pet that you have to take care of and it was too much oh. work. Yeah. What I've done is I picked up some music programs and stuff in a keyboard that I have not touched for 25 years. I used to do music <laughs> when I was a teenager and, you know, I wanted to be in a rock band. I don't want to be in a rock band anymore, but I still kind of have that urge to play music. It's kind of fun. And so I sat down and the first thing I did was I did like a, a Christmas song that was a cover of a George Michael song. And I was like, oh, this is fun. So it's going to be the theme song to my book. And we're going to release that along with the book. That right there sold it for me. Like, I'm ready. I'm ready for the song. I'm ready for the book. Yeah, it's a synth cover, which is <laughs> just so heavy. on. It's just crazy. And maybe I could be the new Mannheim Steamroller or something. <laughs> I actually wrote like a like a six song soundtrack to my book and I'm like I can't release that because people will go you suck you overachiever <laughs> you're no, too no good matter if, no matter if it's good or not you know it would just be like who do you think you are oh did you right. bake a special cake too is there a cake is there you have a recipe that goes along with this book <laughs> I showed my wife, I was like, look, I wrote a whole soundtrack. The look that she gave me was like, are you going to write another book or something? I was like, (laughs) oh gosh. All right. Well, on that note, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to be talking about what we're reading. We are back with Andrew Schaefer and with Carrie. So Carrie, what are you reading? You just went away on a little weekend mental health break, and I'm sure that you have lots of books that you finished in that day and a half, right? So it was two full days. I was going to take four books. I only took two books. And one of the books I finished is Normal People by Sally Rooney. And this is our book club book for October. I will say that I gave it a three out of five. I didn't dislike the book, but I think in order to really dig it, you have to be, I would say, late teens or in your 20s. You have Um, to be really depressed, too. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was reading this. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm 47, and I was reading this book, and I was like, you know what? Your 20s just suck. They're just kind of awful. And this book took me back to all that angst and how do I feel about this person and do I love them and do I not? uh, And I don't know. By the end of it, I was like, you two, you still don't know how to communicate with each other. You're still not saying what you really want to say. And I was just mentally exhausted by the time I got done with the book. And I think there are some things that the book brings up and makes you think about, like in terms of how if you are abused by your family, what that does to you for the rest of your life, what that does to your psyche and how that impacts your ability to have other relationships, especially if you don't get therapy, which I'm not sure that this one character ever did. And she really should have gotten therapy. But like I said, I read it because book club told me this is what we're reading. But I think there's a certain niche of who is going to get something really meaningful out of this book. And it wasn't me (laughs) or maybe anybody who's like in their forties, who's over all that. Yeah. I I can second that. I I read it earlier this year and the writing is great. There's some great stuff in there, but it's the characters themselves. I was like, you guys just either do it or don't who I don't I'm tired of hearing about it. (laughs) Right. I feel like, I didn't pay as much attention to the writing because I was bogged down by their muddle 
I feel like there was probably a lot that I missed because I was hung up on their hangups, I guess. You know, they say it's a book for millennials and anyone who is younger than me, I'm 41 or 42 or something. Anyone who's younger than 40 to me is a millennial. I'm just like, <laughs> I don't care. You could be five years old. You're a millennial. You could be 35. <laughs> right. You're a millennial. That's how I do it. And right. But I think it's definitely a book where you kind of have to look back fondly on those years of confusion and anxiety and angst. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> This yeah. Yeah. Anyway, enough enough about normal people. Andrew, what have you been reading and hopefully enjoying? Oh, I'm at a, an age where if I don't enjoy something that I'm reading, I will stop reading it after, you know, five pages or something. I don't have that where, oh, I need to finish this. So, but normal people, I, I didn't enjoy the characters, but I did actually finish it. So it, it was compulsive reading. You know, it was like, oh, there's enough here to get me through it. I just didn't like the characters that much. But uh, right now I'm reading a book called Solutions and Other Problems by Allie Brosh. And she is a cartoonist. You would have seen her last book called Hyperbole and a Half. Um, I love her. Yes. Oh, I know what gosh. you're talking it's, about. It's, yeah. Yeah. If, if you see the cartoons that she draws, it's this little wide eyed creature with this blonde ponytail that is supposedly her. <laughs> uh, she looks nothing like that, but she has a new book out and it's been seven years since her last book. And people were immediately like, oh, where is she? What's she been doing? And this book is the answer to that. She's like, I've been drawing new stuff and writing new stuff for my book. So there are pictures that she draws, but it's not completely like a comic book, you know, all the way through with the pictures accompany the text. And it is just a riot. I'll just be reading stuff out loud to my wife and we're both just cracking up, probably because of my expert delivery of the subject matter. But um, <laughs> but I'm reading it and, and then we pass the book back and forth. It's just so funny though. And it's impossible to describe, but I think Hyperbole and a Half probably sold a million copies. It was a number one New York Times bestseller. And uh, they're just sort of autobiographical illustrated essays. And Allie Brosh, she's so damned weird. You know, she talks a lot about <laughs> what she was like as a kid. And the first essay in the book is about how she got stuck in a bucket when she was three. It was like a <laughs> Home Depot buckets, you know, those big yeah, buckets. Right. She wanted to see if she could get stuck in it. And she did. And then she fell <laughs> over and she was just rolling around in this bucket. And she goes, yeah, that would be a funny story. However, it happened to her 19 times. <laughs> um, really really just confusing her parents just like why are you doing this and she's like i don't know so i don't know <laughs> oh my goodness this person is very bizarre and and hilarious and hilarious though. hilarious oh that's awesome solutions and other problems right by ali brosh Okay. She's adding it to her TBR I, as we speak. I know, can hear her typing away. I know. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I have half. That's the first one, too. I mean, the new book is it's over 500 pages, but you can read it in four hours or something. Well, Amy, what have you been reading? So I just finished a book called True Grit by Charles Portis, and it's oh, old. Yeah. It was published in 1968, and it was made into a film starring John Wayne in 1969. And in fact, I never knew that it was a book. I, I only knew it as the famous movie with John Wayne. So it wasn't until a few years ago that I learned that it was a book first. And it was about that time that I discovered that I actually liked Westerns, say, after reading Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry which was a total shock to me because I only remembered Westerns as being something that like my dad would watch on TV. And I just thought that they were super, super boring. So Charles Portis actually just passed away this year, but True Grit was his most well-known books. So True Grit's set in the time after the Civil War, and it's the story of Maddie Ross. And she's a 14-year-old young woman from Arkansas who travels from her home to Fort Smith to claim her father's body and belongings after he's shot dead by an outlaw named Tom Cheney. And Maddie is determined to bring Cheney to justice. And so she hires this U.S. Marshal named Rooster Cogburn, which is a really great name, Rooster, um, to track him down in the Indian territories and to bring him back to stand trial. So Cogburn is, he's just a really kind of mean old codger who would rather shoot a guy than to take the trouble to bring him in. Uh, and that's part of what Maddie likes about him. But anyway, he takes up Maddie's offer, but she insists on going with him. 
And she's a very smart girl. She's full of spunk and she won't really let any man dissuade her from what she wants to do. She has this unwavering goal to bring Chaney to justice. And it reminded me a little bit of Mandy Patinkin's character in The Princess Bride, you know, where Mm -hmm. he spends the whole movie saying, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And so her single-mindedness about catching Chaney sort of reminded me uh, of that. And Cogburn, he's virtually an outlaw himself. I mean, he's grizzled, he's ornery, and his past is a little bit shady. So the relationship between this sassy teen girl and this gruff Cogburn is really a funny and heartwarming relationship. But Portis does a really great job of drawing unique characters. And it's kind of funny. I mean, the book, he has a lot of dry wit and there's a lot of adventure in the book. And the title True Grit refers to the reason why Maddie hires Cogburn over the other marshals, because she was told that he had grit. But what we learn is that he isn't the only one, that Maddie Ross herself has as much grit as any of the other characters in this story. So if you like books where you have a friendship between an older character and a young one, you know, remind me a little bit of A Man Called Uva by Frederick Bachman. This would be a book that you could add to your TBR. And it's also a pretty clean book, I would say, in that there's not a lot of bad language. It, there might be a few words, but not a lot. And there's no sex in there. I mean, of course, there's some I violence. There's because <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> but, you know, there is violence. It's a Western. So, you know, there's a lot of gunfights, but it's totally appropriate for a teen, a younger teen to read or, you know, a more sensitive reader, like someone like my mother I'm thinking of who, who doesn't <laughs> like books that have language or sex in them. So I listened to the audiobook version. And it, what's kind of interesting is that the narrator is Donna Tartt, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Goldfinch, which I thought was pretty cool but kind of strange like i didn't even know that authors would narrate other authors books but there's an afterword of the audiobook and she says that this book had been a favorite in her family for several generations starting with her great grandmother and that she herself reads it several times a year and so i wow. just think it must hold a special place for her there's you know there's a 2010 remake version of true grit that the coen brothers directed and it starred jeff bridges and i saw it at the time i remember liking it but i you know i hadn't read the book i'm really anxious to go back and rewatch that movie after now reading the book so i would i would recommend it cool all right well we're going to take a short break and when we come back we're going to talk to andrew schaefer about his top five We are back with Andrew Schaefer, and we're going to ask him his top five. So question number one, if you could safely live with any animal besides the normal domesticated ones, what is the top creature you'd choose and why? Um, Take out the top ones, cat and dog, right? And the second tier ones, the gerbil, the parakeet. I'd always wanted to live with a wolf, though. Like a not domesticated one, but I was the only person that could domesticate, you know? I'd be like the the wolf whisperer. In, you know, in my imagination as a kid, I was like, I want to get a wolf. And I think the reason I had this fantasy was because there's a G.I. Joe figure called Snake Eyes, and he has a wolf as a pet, like a full-blood wolf. He's also a ninja. So I want to be a ninja and have a wolf. And now I'm an adult. And again, I'm, I'm neither of those things. But now I'm like, you know, I don't want a wolf anymore, but I can, you can maybe get like a half wolf. You know, it's probably like illegal, but <laughs> who would know? Nobody. I, I still kind of have that fantasy sometimes. But then I think, you know, what's this going to do to, you know, your homeowner's insurance? You just have all <laughs> problems that come up because I'm sure it's not easy to, if you have a wolf in the house, it's going to eat someone at some point. (laughs) That is such a a person in their forties would say, what's this going to do to homeowner's insurance? (laughs) mm -mm. Can't do it. I have this thing with these, like a marsupial, just because I'd be like really into what's going on in their pouch. and. They probably don't want you looking in their pouch, though. They're sensitive about it. I wouldn't stick my nose in and be like, what's going on in there? But, you know, I could just kind of observe them. A little little tummy scratch or something. Yeah, you know. All right. Well, question number two. In college, you were a wedding DJ. So besides that, what is the top worst job you've ever had? Well, I should clarify that when I was a wedding DJ, it wasn't 
the worst job in the world because <laughs> there was always free beer on the job. And what happened was it just got really depressing, though, every weekend watching other people party and have fun and have these life events. And if you do this for a few years with none of your Saturdays free, and it's just watching other people have a good time, you're like, oh, this is kind of depressing. Then <laughs> this was back in the day where you had to lug around all the CDs. And oh, so gosh. now you just put in an iPod or whatever kids have these days. Anyway, the, the worst job I had around the same time, I was just picking up a bunch of part-time jobs in college. And I got hired to be a cable internet installer. And this is in the very early days of cable internet. I won't say the name of the company that I was hired by, but it rhymes with A, B, and B. And, <laughs> and I got hired as a contractor. And the guy that hired me, they didn't provide any training except for sort of on-the-job training. And also, they sent me out like on my own. So it's like on my own on-the-job training? How did they <laughs> Yeah, I don't. Uh, so they gave me a truck with a giant ladder and a drill. And I, I just had no idea what I was doing. And so I would show up to people's houses and they'd be like, you're the cable installer, right? And I'm like, yep. Okay. And they're like, show me where the cable's at. And they're like, well, it's up there on this pole or something. I'm like, huh. I didn't even know how to set up the ladder the first time I had to use it. For some reason, I was walking with the ladder straight. I extended the ladder first and then started to carry it straight <laughs> up. I don't know what I was thinking. It just I was not trained. And I'd never carried a 20-foot ladder before. And, and I tripped, and it fell, and it went through the side of someone's house. Oh. <laughs> and I just looked at it, and the guy... I think he was just another college kid because it was a college town. And he just looks up and he goes, we're renting. It's not a big deal. <laughs> Whatever. It was like, he wasn't three... worried about homeowner's insurance. I know. That's and right. I was like, I'm sorry, you're going to have to call a B and B about that. And they're going <laughs> to do something. I was like, what happens if we screw up? And then there's like, Oh, they'll just send someone else out. And I was like, okay, well, I guess just file a report. And so my first week on the job was one disaster like this. It was a really tough week. Let me just interject here. Was that it? Like you did this for a week and then you said the heck with this? Or did you continue to do this? No, I did it for a week and then I said the heck with this. Oh, okay, okay. I did not get fired. <laughs> what? I mean, I was like, here's a some paperwork that says I put a hole in your house. Here's the paperwork that says I drilled a hole in your house. Here's the paperwork that says, you know, it was just paper after paper <laughs> just for one full week. And no one ever followed up with me. They're just like, whatever. I'm glad you didn't install my cable. <laughs> yeah. All right. Question number three. You went to a party at Nicholas Sparks's house. Who is the top author you'd want to party with and or sit down to a meal with? Because we are in our 40s, living yeah. or dead. I was going to say, yeah, immediately the party part is out because I'm like, I'm not going to go to a party with any author. You know, I've met a lot of the authors living that I've wanted to meet, and they've all been brilliant. They've all been nice. Oscar Wilde sounds like he'd be a trip. I wrote an entire book called Literary Rogues about just writers, uh, men and women both, who are just sort of literary badasses. And... What I found out, though, was that most of their lives were depressing, like, oh, F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. Oh, look, I drove a car into a water fountain. Oh, man, it's the 20s. I'm having so much fun. I'm like, actually, that's kind of depressing. That is yeah. not that much fun. So, you know, there was a time where I would have said a bunch of really crazy names like, oh, you know, I'd like to party with those two. But now it's like, you know, I think maybe I'd go to like a Cracker Barrel with uh, <laughs> Oscar Wilde or something, you know, they don't have alcohol there. That's why I picked it. I don't want to see my favorite authors get messed up. I just, I want to talk to them a little bit. And yeah, I think Oscar Wilde at a Cracker Barrel, maybe a Waffle House, mm. somewhere where there's no alcohol. So was Lord Byron in that book of yours? Yes. Lord uh. Byron. He was insane. He had a pet bear. He drank wine out of <laughs> one of his ancestors' skulls. 
that he used oh to do a goblet. He was insane. And he yeah. shot guns off inside of his house. He just was nuts. And uh, I guess he was... He was like Florida man. He yes, was. Florida man. He was. He was. One of my friends, uh, Daniel Friedman, wrote a book called A Riot Most Uncouth, which is about a college-age Lord Byron. He's at Oxford or something, and he's got a pet bear that he calls the professor, who's his sidekick, and they solve mysteries together. Oh and it, it is amazing. <laughs> and I think it just kind of went over people's heads that oh, this is kind of based on the real Lord Byron was this nut. They told him that he couldn't have a dog or a cat on campus, so he got a bear. And then they (laughs) shut up. They were like, okay, we're just done with this guy, but what can we do? Question number four, you studied comedy writing at Second City Improv in Chicago. So what's one of the top things you learned about comedic writing and improv that you found helpful in writing your books? Either of you taken any improv classes or? No. No, but I love improv and I've been to Second City several times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, improv is great to watch. But one of the things you learn in the classes is they teach a technique called yes and, which means Uh, that, that you don't say no to anything that your partner does. So your partner may say, hey, we're on Mars now. And you don't say no, we're not. We're actually uh, on the moon. You don't say no to anything that your partner does or says, and therefore you keep expanding the story that you're building together and you sort of branch out in different directions. Because the minute you start saying no, you start trying to control the story by just shutting the other person down. And I find that that's a really great technique for like first drafts and, and rough draft writing is when you're at that stage of brainstorming, don't tell yourself no, you know, when you think of something, you don't say, oh, no, I could never write a book about that, or I could never have that happen. I just sort of let it go in those directions and say, okay, well, if this happens, what happens next? If this happens, what happens? And I keep going, you know, and I find that sometimes I go completely off the rails, and that's fine in a rough draft, and I'll get back on track in the second draft. But with the first draft, it's the only way I can go is just to keep asking myself, Yes, and what happens next. But yeah, it's it's a great technique, though, just to when you're brainstorming. And, and also just remember, yeah, that, that no one's going to see your rough draft except for you. And then, you know, of course, if you die while writing it, uh, it will probably get published. <laughs> Ugh. That's the ultimate goal is to get so successful that someone would want to read your final rough draft. Uh, you know, like David Foster Wallace, you know, left behind like 600 page rough draft. And that book that he left behind was awful. It was a rough draft. Of course it was awful. It was so bad. And yet people bought it and they're like, oh, I can see where this could have been good. You know, I mean, that's every writer's dream is to one day leave something behind that could have been good. All right. Question number five. Your newest book that's coming out in November, Secret Santa, is about a holiday office party gone bad with elements of comedy and horror. So what is the top funniest or scariest thing you've ever received from a Secret Santa or any other kind of gift exchange? Someone asked me this the other day, too, and I was just like, I have no idea. And I thought about (laughs) it even further, and I still have no idea. I've never had like a really bad gift exchange experience, something that's really awful. I mean, you know, in in my family, we have like a pair of old men's boxers that go around and get wrapped up and maybe hung on to for a couple of years and then it will show back up. (sighs) Here's the thing is that I'm probably not going to be the one getting stuck with something because I'm the one who took something that (laughs) is awful and dumb. We did this gift exchange at the Carnegie Center in Lexington, and I teach some classes there. And we did a gift exchange one year, and I took this book called, I think it was called like Butts Are Awesome or something, it was a children's <laughs> book. And then I wrapped it up with like a, a couple cans of beans. And <laughs> we've got 25 people there, and immediately someone unwraps this, and everybody stares at me. They're like, really? <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Why would you all think that I wrapped that up for someone? And several people brought up a good point, which was, I've read a couple of your books, Andrew. There are (laughs) fart jokes in every book. Um, Okay, I see what's going on. I see. 
I'm being picked on here. And so, you know what? I ended up taking it home. That usually happens with almost every gift exchange I do. I end up taking home what I took if it's like a white elephant thing. And it's not because I wanted it. It's because I get stuck with it. My wife's like, well, you're the idiot that bought that book. Well, Andrew, it has been such a riot talking with you today. Thank you so much for being our guest. Yeah, thanks, Amy and Carrie. It's been it's been a lot of fun. I hope you can edit this down to about fifteen minutes of good quality <laughs> <That's right>. content. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.